It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2021, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, the death of Colin Powell broke early Monday morning. He'd been undergoing treatment for an aggressive form of cancer when he contracted COVID. We're going to talk about how that fact, his cancer, was lost in how many in how many news outlets ended up framing their coverage Monday. Before we start, I have to let you know we're having some technical difficulties right now. The Sinclair Broadcast Group wasn't the only one winging it on the air on Sunday. This one from Washington, D.C. after a ransomware attack took down broadcast operations nationwide. And as a second whistleblower testifies against Facebook, this time before the parliament in the U.K., a strange Twitter thread from the company's vice president of communications signals another shoe might be about to drop. There's a lot more that hopefully we'll get to today before our half hour is up, but we're going to start with Governor Parson's mission to criminally prosecute a St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter who discovered a data breach on the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's website, alerted the state, and then reported on it. We also do not know why this individual seeking to access convert and take personal information from Missouri teachers. But let me be clear, this administration is standing up against any and all perpetrators who attempt to steal personal information. This incident alone may cost Missouri taxpayers as much as $50 million and divert workers and resources from other state agencies. This matter is a serious matter. The state is committing to bring to justice anyone who hacked our system and anyone who aided or encouraged them to do so. So, Ernest, clear this up for our audience. Was this actually a hack or could you have done this or I done this or Kathy done this or your average fourth grader? All of the above, including the fourth grader, could have done this because it was embedded in a publicly accessed code that anyone could have gotten. And what the Post-Dispatch was trying to do was alert the government and everyone else to this problem. So, no, this was not a hack. However, back in September, there was a hack to the retirement system for teachers and that hack actually exposed uh, social security numbers to the to the point where now that agency is having to provide uh, a, the the uh, the security service for those those. Teachers. So, in your opinion, is it possible? And I'm making this your opinion. Okay. The governor was p- potentially conflating those two incidents because this right-click thing would not have cost $50 million for the state to recover. Well, the $50 million is, is what is the governor saying that had the reporter not pointed it out, we mm. wouldn't have fixed this? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, the I, whole thing is just baffling to me because even members of his own party are basically saying, uh... Governor, we think you got this one wrong. 
Right. And so what actually happened here, just so that we can clear this up from a technological standpoint, what happened is that this information, when you say it was embedded, I just want to clarify this for people who may not be fully on board. What happened here is that when the website itself was programmed, the HTML code or the source code that programs and lays out the information on the page had those social security numbers embedded in the code that includes the words and the images that programs what shows up in the browser. Yes, and anybody could just hit control F12, Mm -hmm. or if you're on a Mac, uh, go to the top nav bar, view, developer, see source code. That is what this reporter did. And right, that's all that reporter did. (laughs) And frankly, like, I I have seen situations where people have intentionally put kind of Easter egg type things in source code. I know that when we used to have students who would um, have their own portfolios, they hand coded instead of using a templated platform that they would sometimes hide something in the source code in there that said, you know, programmed by hand by so-and-so so that they put a little signature in there. Um, Part of what was so outstanding or exceptional, and I'm not using those words in good ways here, um, was this reaction that people were having on Thursday to this news conference, to Parsons' actions in this area. There was outrage from journalists who saw it as a free press issue. There was also the information technology community that was coming right back out at him and the internet was fast and furious with trying to school the governor on like how the internet and computers work. Yeah, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things, this this was a real um, threat to the press. I mean, the idea that you would uh, criminally prosecute a reporter for accessing public information is uh, is scary, and that's a terrible thing. But we free press advocates really didn't have to do anything. All we had to do was sit back and watch the governor's Twitter feed, and I've never seen anything like it. I mean, there wasn't a single <laughs> response in favor. It was just one dunk after another. And, you know, one of my favorite was um, this is the equivalent, the digital equivalent of leaving your wallet out in the rain and then uh, calling the cops on the person who tried to return it to you. Right. I mean, I think it's we really need to say very clearly here that the reporter uh, was trying, if the governor said he didn't know why the reporter was trying to access this, the, the governor was trying to, uh, the reporter was trying to get information about teacher certifications, which is something that parents would be interested in mm-hmm. and is certainly public information. In the course of trying to get this information, the reporter, which by the way, reporters do this, it's called scraping, not hacking. And it's using publicly accessible HTML code to try to organize information that the state doesn't make transparent on the websites. That's why reporters do this. And um, and so the reporter was trying to get information that was public. In the course of trying to get information that was public, the reporter found Social security numbers. Information that, that wasn't and supposed to be instead, in Exactly. Instead of just running to the printing press and hitting, uh, you know, let's start the presses, 
the St. Louis Post-Dispatch very responsibly went to the state, gave the state time to uh, fix things up before then reporting that this had happened, which if I were a teacher, I'd want to know that it had happened because some of my data might have been exposed to somebody who was less responsible and I'd want to take measures with my credit report, et cetera. So the St. Louis Post-Dispatch deserves a medal, not a summons. Well, here's the thing that bothers me. So if, if the governor is saying you know, that the state is going to have to spend $50 million to fix this. They're also going to have to spend money on an investigation that, into how it into got, how to, it got to that point, not spend money on an investigation of a reporter that basically came to you and said, hey, this is what's happening. You need to do something about it. And the reporter made no promises that it wasn't going to be printed in a newspaper mm-hmm. and put up digitally that this actually happened. That's the part I don't understand. It's like, okay, spend the $50 million to fix it, which we all know is gonna cost more than that because your entire computer system is antiquated and needs to be uh, upgraded, both hardware as well as software. So th- that's the that that's a whole nother story right there. But let's stop this investigation wasting the the investigators who work who also work for the state wasting their time on this. Well, well. and maybe you should fill the vacancies on the cybersecurity commission that was signed into law by the governor in July, and no one's been nominated yet. There you go. There's a challenge right there. <laughs> Meanwhile, hackers did take over in Jefferson City at KRCG and at the Sinclair Broadcast Group stations across the country. Sunday night, it looked like what we had in our open, and this is what it looked like Monday night at KRCG's sister station in Little Rock. Well, good evening and welcome to Channel 7 News at 6. We thank you for joining us. You may have noticed over the last 24 hours that things are a bit different with our newscasts and with our programming here on Channel 7. That is because our station and our parent company, the Sinclair Broadcast Group, were targets of a weekend cyber attack. This attack has impacted many of our network systems across the country, and it is disrupting many of our normal operations. Our team here in Little Rock, along with our corporate partners, are working to restore normal operations to our broadcast as quickly as possible. Those normal operations, they're, they're still not really happening. I would have loved to have brought you a clip from a KRCG newscast, but several of them have been canceled between early Monday morning and when we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, Its website has barely been updated in that time. So some of what we have been able to gather from other stations have been people who have been recording what's on their television and putting it on YouTube. More than 200, between 200 and 250 stations across the country brought down by this. Yeah, I'm not really surprised that this has happened. Uh, I think you're going to see more of it. Uh, you've, You've seen this happened to major corporations. You've seen it happen to hospitals. You've seen it happen to- Columbia Tribune. Columbia Tribune. You've seen it happen to, to, to major institutions. The fact that someone went after an entire broadcast group, that doesn't surprise me, especially now that many of them are, have been consolidated and they're all running off the same content uh, management systems. You're able to do something like this. I mean, in the past, they may have been owned by a particular group, but they all operated independently, which would have made this difficult to do. That's not the case anymore. 
Well, in in the case of what happened with Sinclair, we were looking at situations where there was no access to a teleprompter, which we saw what happened on this program a couple of weeks ago when <laughs> right. I had no access to a teleprompter. But they were writing scripts on Microsoft Word, not necessarily able to print them, communicating between different employees in the newsroom using text, telling well, people to stay home. They couldn't even forecast the weather. They lost all access to that. They're doing weathercasts right. on white marker boards. I, I thought yeah. that was the most extraordinary thing people should really look on the links blog because there's the weatherman with a whiteboard and a magic marker and I thought boy it's lucky that he's good at penmanship and drawing because that's you know that's not that's a skill set exactly yeah. that you would have expected well and I suppose there's something to be said for that right that that's old school that mm -hmm. when the technology all came to a screeching halt what we did see was at least some ingenuity in these newsrooms as people tried to think of creative ways to still continue to serve their local audiences. No, absolutely. I mean, you have people do this every day. I mean, teachers do it every day where, you know, some piece of technology doesn't work and they're back to... But not to, every piece of technology. Well, not every piece of technology. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're back to using yeah. the chalkboard, you know. Uh, so... That that I think was important, but I also think that it it, it goes back to making sure that your systems are secure. I mean, this goes back to to the previous story uh, uh, when we we're talking about the governor and 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 the uh, and and the, the system with the state, making sure that it's secure. But even then, you're still going to have the issues with hackers. And and my guess is here. I mean, we haven't seen any stories, but my guess is that they're holding that hostage. Right. Until it, it, was ransomware. Ransomware it was a ransomware attack. That so, it is is in fact being but we don't hostage. but we don't know for how much and and we don't know if this is also we haven't heard whether or not this is politically driven because we know that the owner of Sinclair uh is very politically active so there could be something along those lines well, we're going to keep watching, or well, at least trying to. And I, you know, kudos to the people who work at the stations yes. for kludging away around it, because I think, you know, one of the things that this highlights is how much we depend on technology. Right. And it's almost like, you know, the Boy Scouts, you better know how to start a fire with two twigs. Um, and I, I think it underscores for us at journalism schools that you really need to understand how to get the news out when all else fails right. uh, because people count on you. And as you said, Ernest, this happens in other places when there's a hurricane. We've seen TV and radio stations keep broadcasting in the teeth of that. Um, we've seen newspapers, when their newsrooms are flooded, find ways to keep putting things on the Internet. So I think, um, you know, this is one of the things that it's so important uh, and it really is a way to, to defy that kind of ransomware to say, go ahead we're gonna keep putting the news out no matter what. Okay, well, pardon me just a second. Monday morning, the push alert came pretty early. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell had passed away dying following complications of COVID-19. Powell had been out of the public for many months. I think the last time we had really seen him in public was during this recorded message delivered during the 2020 Democratic National Convention, during which he announced he didn't identify as a Republican anymore and was urging people to support Joe Biden. Powell was undergoing treatment for an aggressive form of blood cancer called multiple myeloma. It's a condition that made him especially vulnerable to infection. That fact didn't stop many from immediately weaponizing his death. 
complicated by symptoms of COVID-19, even after he had been vaccinated. Take a listen to this from Will Kane on Fox News. We're seeing data from across the world. We're seeing data from Europe, from the United Kingdom, that fully vaccinated people are being hospitalized and fully vaccinated people are dying from COVID. And here we have a very high profile example that is going to require more truth, more truth from our government, from our health leaders as well. As we talk about this story on a day when state after state and institution after institution are pushing mandates for vaccination. Uh, in this time of divided, uh, the country's very divided. One thing people are pretty clear, you're going to get both sides of the aisle weighing in just as strongly with Cole and Powell because I think it was pretty hard not to have great respect to the person he was and what he's achieved. So I want to talk about both of the uh, of the stories that kind of came out of that 33-second soundbite. Let's start with the data that Will Cain was calling for. The data that I see here, and I could be wrong, but the data I see is an 84-year-old man who was in treatment for a vicious form of cancer. He was fully vaccinated, but medical experts will say that there's strong evidence that the vaccine can be made ineffective for those well, in treatment for multiple myeloma. Yeah, the, the thing, the, the point here is that if you're in treatment for cancer, you are getting, your immune system is being suppressed mm -hmm. deliberately. That's what chemotherapy does. And, um, and you know, there are a lot of people in this state. I, to me, it's an argument for vaccination because a couple of weeks ago, I was on the East Coast and I took advantage of the opportunity. I had a business meeting and I went to see a very dear friend of mine who lives in New York City. Before, I am fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Before I went to see her, though, I took a PCR test. Why? Because she is a double organ transplant recipient. She has had to take immunosuppressants most of her adult life. That means that even though she's fully vaccinated, she is still more vulnerable than other people. So what I really believe is that we, the science tells us that the vaccine protects us against serious illness, most of us, who aren't on immunosuppressant therapy, but okay. people who are or people who are elderly are more uh, vulnerable. So why be a carrier? You know, not only, that's why we're not only getting vaccinated, we're wearing masks, because we don't want to be a carrier and infect somebody who is in that situation. And his immune system was diminishing the effectiveness the treatment. of that vaccine. Right. That was very clearly lost in a lot of the coverage. You can see a lot of it on our links blog that I posted examples there of stories that really did make this about Colin Powell, famous man, American leader, dies of COVID after being vaccinated. There are so many complicating factors there that the journalists who wrote those stories ignored. Again, and we've talked about it on the show a lot, especially uh, since you know since COVID arrived on the scene, that this this story is complicated, and oftentimes in journalism we will dumb down what it is that we're talking about and hope that the public picks up on the nuances. Well, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not. It's not going to happen. And and again. What what those stories should have said is exactly what Kathy's talking about. And there's a way to write those stories. There's a way to report those stories so that it comes out. How many times have we heard Dr. Fauci and others say, "Look, when you're when you're around people who are immunocompromised and who have who are who are also dealing with other very harsh and complicated medical conditions, 
you need to, number one, make sure you mask up. Whether you're vaccinated or not, you need to make sure you mask up because they're dealing with other issues that could be exacerbated by uh, catching, uh, catching COVID. You could write that in, and that's what happened to Colin Powell. And you can write that in the story, but because they hear the word COVID and then they take off running saying, well, he died of COVID. It wasn't just he, COVID. He could have died from a cold in the condition Absolutely. that he, he could have was died from in. The, he could have died from the flu. He could have died from a whole, whole bunch of other things because of the condition that he was in. So let's go back to the other part of this, the, um, the, the achievements of Colin Powell, because he is and was a very accomplished man. And we can talk about how the coverage of his death was framed, but really this was a very respected military leader who um, the coverage somehow got overshadowed a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the, the coverage got overshadowed. I, I, uh, I think that uh, they did a very good job of talking about all the firsts, the fact that, you know, he was the first African-American secretary of state, uh, all the firsts in terms of his military career, the fact that he benefited from many of the civil rights wins uh, that, 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 that took place. Uh, they also brought up the fact that he was the one who was who stood before the UN and basically made the case for the invasion of Iraq under false pretenses, false information that he, of all the all the the those who were involved in the Bush administration, he's the one, only one that I know of of the, of the ones who are at the top who has basically came out and said, "Look, I was wrong. We were wrong." in doing that because the information was false. Dick Cheney never stood up for that. Neither did Rumsfeld stand up for that. The former president didn't stand up for that. So they they talked about that in in, in highlighting his life and the fact that he came out and, and ultimately said, no, you know, uh, we were wrong in, in doing that based on the information, the false information that we were given. Is that gonna be his legacy? That he was the one who came out and said it was wrong? I think the first will be the legacy. And then the other thing to me, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the anniversary of 9-11. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk at the time. People were trying to sort of make a straight line from 9-11 to where we are now, to January 6th. And I was skeptical of that. But Colin Powell's death has really made me see a connection that I didn't see before. And that is um, Colin Powell was a victim of 9-11. Um, and he was kind of the last guy in the center. You know, he, because he was the first in so many things, he was a centrist in an administration that after 9-11 veered sharply away from centrism. And he was That's iced when out. Centris- centrism died. Exactly. And he was, you know, I think what 9-11 did was it planted that extremism virus in our uh, national bloodstream. And people like uh, Colin Powell, who are, you know, centrist people who are trying to um, uh, find a way to compromise and find a way to be in the middle, were shoved aside. That happened in the Bush administration um, after 9-11. It happened and in I the think, Republican Party as well. And I think, you know, what what you would hope the legacy is that we would meditate a little bit on that and say, we need more people like him in public service, not fewer. Okay, so our next story kind of starts with do as I say, not as I do. 
There was a strange Twitter thread from Facebook's vice president of communications on Monday that said, quote, Right now, 30-plus journalists are finishing up a coordinated series of articles based on thousands of pages of leaked documents. We hear that to get the docs, outlets had to agree to to the conditions and a schedule laid down by the PR team that worked earlier, that worked on earlier leaked docs. What he's describing here is basically an embargo information given to reporters on an agreement that it would get published at a specific deadline. That's something Facebook does all the time. It's called collaboration. Um, and it's it's more and more frequent and more and more necessary in the news business because, as we've talked about on this show, um, newsrooms are smaller. Uh, we're trying to cover as much, if not more, news with fewer reporters. So the way a lot of news organizations respond to that is by working together. So you can leverage your resources. You read these documents. I'll read those documents. We'll put our notes together and figure out what we've learned, and then we'll publish our stories on the same day at the same time so nobody scoops the other person. That's collaboration. And, um, you know, that's how it works, Facebook, in the journalism business. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, again, I, you, you explained it very well. And you, you're going to see more and more of this, especially because you have these news organizations that are going after powerful institutions. And Facebook is a powerful institution. I mean, we've, we've seen it in the Panama Papers and in the recent Pandora, Pandora Paper. Papers. You're going to see more and more of this, especially if you're talking about news organizations globally. Uh, that are going after major institutions that cut across borders. So this, to me, this email was basically a, a, a opening salvo in what could likely be one of those instances. And they're trying to get out front of this and say, hey, we want to let the world know that something big is coming and it's probably going to be on uh, against us. We want you to know that it's there was some- It's a preemptive strike. It's a preemptive strike. We also want you to know that, uh, that, that they're scheming against us. Yeah, we're the victim of a conspiracy. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> so- <laughs> So much to say there, right? Poor Facebook. Um, One of the things I was hoping you could talk about for a second, Kathy, because I know this is something that we've had some side conversations completely out of the context of this program just between the three of us about what it means to interview documents, what it means to interview data. Talk for a second about what this team of 30 journalists is likely looking for there. Well, it sounds like they've gotten a big leak of Facebook data and probably some inside documents. And, uh, you know, one of our Missouri uh, School of Journalism graduates and Missouri Medal uh, Honor Medalists, uh, Marina Walker, is an expert at this. You you pull together a team of reporters, and I think Ernest's point was really a good one, that when you're dealing with a transnational organization, it's usually going to be a transnational team of reporters. Each one is going to look at documents from his or her own sphere of interest or expertise, whether that be... And geography. Exactly. Whether that be their country or something that they're particularly expert in. And they're going to be looking at those documents to say, what uh, what is the provenance of the documents? Are these legit? 
um, do what the documents are saying makes sense. We're going to cross-check what we're seeing in the documents mm -hmm. against other sources. So it is a painstaking uh, long-term process that requires, um, yes, a lot of coordination among people with different expertise. That's responsible journalism. If this data had been leaked, um, I know we've talked in the past about using leaked government data, about whistleblower mm. laws. Are there differences in leaked data or documents if it comes from the public sector versus the private sector? Well, there's all legal experts will be the ones that will contend with that because yeah. you will have lawyers that would jump in and say, you know, this was this was public, this was private. Uh, someone someone came after our data. We're going to sue them or we're going to sue the company or the media operation mm -hmm. that actually came out with this. So, yeah, there are some differences there, but again, now you go into the 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 court of the, the 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 legal court, but now you're also in the court of public opinion and that court itself is going to pass judgment on whether or not there's validity and uh, accuracy within within yeah, the story. And, and it's not just interviewing the documents, it's really examining what in these documents is in is of public interest right. and what really needs to be kept private, right. like uh, checking account numbers and social security right. numbers. And this is the difference between responsible journalism and WikiLeaks. Yep. And what we talk about with disinformation or malinformation. Right. Exactly. Somebody intentionally publishing something is a bad actor. Well, that music means we're out of time for this week. Thanks for spending the last half hour with us. You can read more about the topics we talked about on our links blog at kbia.org. We're also available wherever you get your favorite podcast downloads. I'd like to thank Travis McMillan for directing today's program, Aaron Hay for handling the audio, and Tim Pilcher for our, composing our original theme music. I'm Amy Simons. Be sure to join us again in two weeks when we're back with you for another edition of Views of the News.